there are some in this room who feel like there is no hope or that they are beyond hope. As we're doing this series on rising hope, I think it's important that we address those who are struggling. And we're not talking about heroin addicts or, or people addicted to drugs. We're talking about some of us who are addicted to other things that nobody knows about. Whether that be money, whether that be performance, whether that be expectations. In Galatians 5, 1 through 14, Paul says this. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You are trying to justify the, by the law, have alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we have hope. For in Christ Jesus... Neither circumcision or uncircumcision has value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You are running a good race. Who cut you in to uh, keep you from obeying the truth? The kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works his way through the whole batch of dough. And I'm confident in the Lord that he will take no other view. Then he says at verse 13, 14, You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge in the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another. The entire law is summed up in one single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Let us pray. Father God, I am thankful and grateful for the message of the gospel that at the root cause of all the problems of, of our lives is, is a very simple word. It's a three-letter word which you define as sin. Sin at its very core is a separation from you and a separation from one another. And when we sin, we fall into this trap of being addicted to anything and everything around us. I pray, Lord, that as we deal with the subject of addiction, of, of the things that have mastery over our lives, that you would not help us to see this message as for somebody else, but to see it for ourselves, that, that we all struggle with certain things in our lives. Whether that be things that we classify as big, the big sins, or whether they be secret sins, we all struggle. And so, Father, um, free us today, this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> today, we're going to be talking about bondage. And we're going to talk about slavery. Now, when you see an image of somebody who's been shackled, that's what we think of when we think of slavery, don't we? We think of an image in the 1800s where a, uh, a person of, of African descent was locked up in a cage and was treated inhumanely. And that's what most of us think of slavery. But today I want to talk about slavery that's not forced, that's not involuntary. But I want to talk about slavery that is actually voluntary, that we choose to get ourselves into. It is the bondage of our own making. It is the bondage of our sinful desires. And the term that, that we may use that's familiar with all of us is, is the word addiction. You saw a, a, an image of a man who, through many choices of his life, 
was addicted to heroin. You see the effects of that in his arm. And so many of us equate addiction to some sort of drug abuse. But the reality is addiction is, is not just drug abuse. That all of us in some ways can be enslaved, be in bondage to things. And whether we realize it or not, <coughs> excuse me, we feel like we're a prisoner. And there's some of us in this room who feel imprisoned by our own desires. When I think of sin, I think about how devastating sin can be, how enslaving it can be. And so many people fall into addiction and then they fall over and over again. There's some of you in this room that know of people like that or may be somebody like that. What's sad is that according to uh, Benoki Johnson, professor of neuroscience at UVA Medical School, he says this, I don't believe that traditional rehabilitation using self-help methods is effective. In fact, the data suggests that they are not much better than any spontaneous rates of recovery. Relapse rates for addictive disease usually are in the range of 50 to 90%. In other words, most people who have some sort of addictive problems fall back into that same addiction. So if there's no hope for people like that, then the question is, is where does that hope reside? If everybody's going to fall back into the same old patterns, then, then, then can we seek help from outside? And of course, there's some that is critical and important that we do need to seek therapists or counselors. But a therapist and a counselor in itself will not solve the very nature of the root of our problem. See, the problem of, of humanity is not necessarily just, just these things that, that we think of. Because addiction can be a wide range of things. It could be things like alcohol. It could be things like uh, it, the internet. It could be things like uh, pornography or things like performance or our jobs or anything that takes mastery over our lives. And here's the sad reality of addiction is that sometimes the thing that we think we're not addicted to are the very thing that enslaves us. One of the most common addictions of our day is a, a, an addiction that a lot of our young people are growing up with, and that's the addiction to technology. There was an article in The Atlantic magazine that surveyed, uh, told a story about a 14-year-old girl. Her name was uh, Casey from New Jersey. She, at the age of 18 months, received her first computer. And then at the age of, of uh, by second grade, she had her first cell phone. Now, Casey may not be representative of, of her generation, but her comments are revealing, and this is what Casey says. Casey said about her addiction to technology and social media, I bring my phone everywhere. I have to be holding it. It's like OCD. I have to have it with me all the time. It's not like I want to go on social media or I don't. I just go on it. I'm like, I'm forced to. I don't know why, but it takes up my whole life. If I'm not watching TV, I'm on the phone. If I'm not on the phone, I'm on my computer. If I'm not doing those things, what am I supposed to do? I mean, I don't ever put down my phone. Casey said something interesting about friendships. She describes an incident in which a, a friend wasn't included in, in her chat, so she stopped being friends with her. Not because she didn't like her, but because she didn't have the means to communicate with her. Because the only way she could be friends with this other person is that they had to get a phone. And so her, her friend actually got a phone, and now she was included in the in-group. Whether we think about addiction or not, some of us are addicted to approval. 
Some of us are addicted to uh, performance. Others are addicted to our jobs, to our work, to money. Whatever that is, it is the very thing that takes mastery over us. And here's the point. All addiction leads us away from God and moves us closer to narcissism. At the root cause of, of, of addiction is my needs are greater than any other needs. And so that's what the Bible talks about that we are all enslaved to this bondage of sin. And the effect of sin is addiction. Paul says something interesting in 1 Corinthians 6.12. He says this, Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. In other words, here's the question for you. What is your master? In other words, who masters you? Who controls you? Now, some of you say, I control myself. But the reality is the very thing that drives us is the thing that masters us. 2 Peter 2.19 says, They promise them freedom, while they, then they, they themselves are slaves of depravity. For a man is slave to whatever has mastered him. Think about that. Whatever takes your mind, your heart, your affection, that is your master. The Bible has another word for that. It's an, it's an idol. It's the thing that we serve more than any other thing. And that doesn't mean that, that, that we are atheists or that we don't come to church or we don't sing worship songs. It simply means the inner drive, the inner temptation, the inner desires. And again, it's not just drugs. It could be anything. In this particular story we're going to look at, it was actually the drug of religion, ironically. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul is writing to a group of Christians, as these are Christians who were living by the Old Testament. They thought that the way they earned favor from God was to be addicted to being moral in the Old Testament. So they would follow the Old Testament laws. They would religiously do all the religious observations, thinking that they were serving and worshiping God by doing good things. But Paul says, no, you are just as much of in bondage as somebody who may be addicted to heroin or crack or job or whatever it is. And so this whole idea of, of freeing ourselves from bondage is what Paul's going to be talking about. And I want to walk you through some really important things. Now, again, I'm not going to downplay counseling. I'm not going to downplay therapy and all those. Those are important. But what I'm saying is that even if you're a secular therapist and you don't have the same foundation, you're never going to be cured because here's the ultimate problem with mankind. It is not our behavior. It is our inner heart. It is our being. It is what the Bible defines as sin. And so sin is that thing. If you have a, a, a post, we think of all these things that, that drive us. It is pride, gluttony, all those, the seven deadly sins. But at the root cause of sin is a separation from God. Somebody uh, uh, defines sin as that little character in between the S and I. It's basically being independent from God. That's what sin is. To say that I am God. And so when Adam and, and Eve rejected God's command, what they were doing was saying, I place my desires over God himself. And here's the equation. Sin plus anything that masters you equals addiction. Sin plus anything that masters you 
equals addiction. And the good news is this, that Jesus frees us from that. He frees us from the addiction of of performance. He frees us from the addiction of religiosity. He frees us from from the disease of everything else that compels us, that calls us to worship and serve it. If I were to summarize my sermon in one sentence, it's this, that freedom is realized in Christ by hope in righteousness, His righteousness, and faith expressing itself through love. I'm going to share with you three things that I think will begin to help you sort of understand how you can be free from the power of sin and bondage in your life. When you saw the video of, of, of the man, I think many of you can identify with him. Or maybe you've had loved ones who you just want to help so much, but they just make all the wrong choices. question I have for that video is, is that, that you could be that person as well. We all make choices in our lives. And so we have a, to, uh, a choice to be free or we have a choice to be in bondage. So what does Paul say about freedom? Number one, we have to realize that freedom that Christ has already set us free. You know, the beautiful thing about this passage is this, that as, as Paul is writing to this church who were in, under the yoke of slavery, of, of religious performance, he says this, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. The first command is this, you are not in slavery. Now, why is this so profound? Well, the thing is, is this, that what Jesus did for us is he freed us. He, 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 he posted bail for us. Imagine if you were uh, put in jail for whatever reason. Maybe it was a misunderstanding. Or they locked you up. And in prison, uh, you know, it's like you can leave now because somebody has posted your bail. But in your mind, it's like, well, I didn't pay for the bail, so, I, so I'm not free. So you choose to stay in jail. Even the door has been wide open. The point that Paul is making is this, that the mindset you need to have is that God, Christ, has already unlocked the keys to bondage. That Christ's past work frees us from our present pain. And I think for a lot of Christians, we, we don't realize that. We don't realize that what Jesus did on the cross was so impactful to the present that even the things that we are are, are focusing on that Christ has freed us from. Isn't it interesting in in John chapter 8 verse 34 he says, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in a family, but now a son belongs to it forever. So if a son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Here was the point that why Jesus came. He came to free us from the very bondage of sin and addiction. Jesus has already set us free. Now, what's important in verse 1 is this. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm and do not let yourself be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. The Greek word um, has freed us is actually in the aorist tense. And if you've ever studied, (laughs) some of you have studied Greek, you know, that's one and done deal. In other words, you can't do anything to break yourself free again because the chains have been broken. But you know what keeps us in bondage for a lot of us, even as Christians, is that our mentality or our mindset is still in bondage. 
I'll give you an illustration. Many years ago, I heard a story about an a, a eagle uh, that had an egg uh, perched in a, in a nest, and that uh, the egg had fallen down and kind of rolled down into where uh, chickens were, and this hen picked up, literally took the egg, this eagle egg that had fallen, and, and sat on it just with the other eggs. And one day, this eagle uh, egg hatched. And so the mother hen treated the eagle just as if it was one of her chicks. And so they would follow her around. They would do exactly what a chicken would do. And one day, as the eagle was growing up, looked in the sky and saw a bunch of eagles fly. And he thought to himself, I wish I could do that. I wish I could fly like those eagles. And, and he looked to his, his mom, mother hen and said, Mom, do you think I could do that? And the mother said, don't be silly, you're a chicken. You can never fly. And so this eagle lived his life and died as a chicken. And I think about this, that the mindset that we have oftentimes is that we don't recognize that Christ has already freed us. That we don't need to have the mindset of, of being in bondage. But you know what keeps us in bondage is, is, that, is that, that our mindset uh, enslaves us, but that we don't, we just kind of give in to our desires. Notice what he says in verse five, in verse one, he goes, stand firm then and do not let yourself be burdened again by the yoke of sin. The word stand firm, by the way, is important because as Tim Keller says this, free believers need to stand firm in their freedom. To stand firm is essentially a military word mixing together the ideas of keeping alert, being strong, and resisting attack. In other words, the thing that tempts us are the inner voices in our head. Satan reminding us, you're no good. Your addictions are greater than you. You'll never be able to win. There was an an interesting NPR um, episode entitled, The Devil Inside of Me. And the show host uh, asked various people uh, uh, if they've ever felt they were under the spell of an inner voice that helped them bondage to unwanted thoughts. And so the show host began to ask different people, have you ever had this voice telling you to do this? And it was astounding, he said, the response from the interviews. A man said, I certainly know the voice you're talking about. A woman said, totally out of control. I got this life uh, on its own, and I can't tame it anymore. Another woman said, I actually have a name for my voice. She calls it Stan. Stan is the guy who tells me to have an extra glass of wine. Stan is the guy who tells me to smoke. Isn't it interesting how the inner voices affect the way we behave? The voice that God gives is the Holy Spirit. And the first thing he reminds us is you're free. That you don't have to do those things. And so how do you then replace the inner voice with God's voice? And that's by the word of God. Psalm 119 verse 11 says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. The more you immerse yourself, the more you drink from the Word of God, the more you memorize Scripture, what happens is that your negative thoughts are replaced by God thoughts. And God thoughts then change the way you deal with those things that hold us in bondage. The reason we choose to be in bondage is we choose not to walk out of the the very place that Christ has freed us. But the second thing is this. Our hope lies in God's righteousness, not our indulgence. Let me say that again. Our hope is in God's righteousness, not our indulgence. There are some who think that if you are tempted, you should just do it. 
Just get it out of your system. I had one guy who told me that. He said, you know, if you're tempted to sin, just do it. And then the more you do it, you're just going to get out of your system. you get bored of it. The problem with that view is this. That the more you do it, yes, you may get bored of it, but then you'll be doing something worse as a result of it. Notice what, what, what he says here in verse 5. It's interesting. And by faith we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which he has called. Um, he says that, that instead of indulging in our behavior, he says rather indulge in God's righteousness. In verse 13, he says, You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. The thing about God's righteousness is this. God's righteousness has imputed on us. That's a theological word meaning is this. That God has now sort of replaced you with somebody else. Uh, one of the great verses in the Bible, 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. God has now basically taken his righteousness and now has clothed you in your sinfulness. And so you are not now enslaved to your inner desires, but now the cloak of God has changed you and transformed you. He's changed your mind. He's changed your heart. He's changed your attitude. He's changed your action. I think the greatest thing about being a Christian is to recognize is this, that you're valuable before God. That everything you do, that God has the best for you. And when you replace your life with his, it's, a, it's an exchange. God, it's like if you go to the store and you have an old iPhone, you know, iPhone 5 or iPhone 6, and you go to the, the Apple store and they give you the brand new X, XR or X whatever, XS, and they give you a new, and, and you have to pay, you don't pay anything. The exchange is this. God said, he who no, who no, no said, became sin for us, so that you might become the righteousness of God. The idea of imputation is so important. There's a helpful, there's a, a, a character in Chinese, it's what, it's what they call the righteousness. It's really interesting if you look at it, because Chinese characters are actually pictures. And in one particular picture, has a picture of a lamb, uh, one of the two, if you two separate the two characters, one has a picture of a lamb and the other is for me. When the lamb is directly placed above me, a new character is formed. Righteousness. Think about how we as Christians have now been replaced. And so the thing that drives us, the inner motivation is different. And, and we become good not so that we can earn God's favor, we become good because God's righteousness it's transformed us, the way we think, the way we act, and the way we live. Galatians 5.13 says, You, my brothers, were called to be free. Do not indulge in your sinful desires, but rather be free from that. But the last thing is this, and I love how he ends this. So we know from a theological perspective that God freed us. Jesus died for us. We talk about that all the time in church. That we also recognize the second thing is this, that we shouldn't indulge in our desires and our sin because the more we indulge, the more that sin grows. By the way, there's a great illustration of that. Uh, there was a man who raised a snake, this large snake, uh, this baby snake, uh, boa constrictor. And he thought that this would be part of his family. So he fed it and fed it. And one day as the snake began to grow, eventually it escaped from his cage. 
and kill the very owner that he was raising. That's what sin does. The more we feed it, the more we indulge in it, the more destructive that behavior becomes. Here's the thing about sin at its very core. It will separate you from God, but it will also separate you from other people. And so the more we indulge, the more our marriages suffer, the more our children suffer, the more the people around us suffer. And the loneliest place are those who have indulged in everything and realize that, that they have isolated themselves from, from, all, from people around them. But here's the replacement of that. So what's the opposite of sin? What's the cure, the antidote? And the answer is love. Here's what he says in verse 6 and verse 14. It says, for Christ, um, I'm, uh, for, in Christ, verse 6, neither circumcision nor un- uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And then he says in verse 15, um, I'm sorry, verse 14, the entire law is summed up in one single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. You know what changes fundamentally when you become a Christian? What changes fundamentally is your understanding of love because you recognize that love is not selfish, it's not self-indulgent, that love is self-sacrifice. And the reason that Christian love is very different than non-Christian love is this. The basis of our love is what God has done for us. That God, while we were still sinners, loved us so much that he died for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish. And so the fundamental nature of Christian love is this. It's self-sacrifice. And here's the last point. That our transformation comes through faith working out in love. The final point is important. Because religion can give us a set of rules and regulations. But it's a relationship with God that frees us from that rule and regulation. It doesn't mean that we indulge in sin. What it means is that we don't want to indulge in sin anymore. Because the thing that we love more than anything else is God himself. So here's the question for you. What is your deepest affection? What is the thing that you love more than anything else? Because that is your God. And so Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 23, love your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And this is the first and greatest command. And the second is like this, love your neighbor as yourself. Here's the point that we often sort of misunderstand. That the way in which we can love love our neighbors is first to understand and experience God's love for us and our love for him. That love in its very primary sense is a love relationship with God himself. The primary act of love is God himself. That God is the object and the subject of our love. And when we love God more than anything else, then the the desires of our flesh really become secondary. And we become new creation. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is God, and behold, the new is God. And here's why it's so fundamentally different. When you start loving God, the things that you used to desire, the addictions, the, the things that master you, start to disappear. The desires don't become as strong anymore. 
And then the second corollary happens is that the more you love God, the more you begin to love people. And the more you love people, the very thing that you used to be indulgent in, remember I said sin is indulgence? The more it frees you from yourself. A University of Wisconsin professor Stephen Small wrote this. That churning your addiction to serving others, he says the process of helping others can be a beneficial consequence for the helper as well. Studies of peer helping where, uh, where equals assist one another have shown sometimes helpers benefit more than those who help. Helping others benefit a person in a variety of ways. A person may feel needed and gain the increased sense of self-worth. A positive itself regard may increase the result of recognizing one's ability to assist. When a helper becomes aware of and familiar with the problems of others, he or she may decrease concerns about their own problems. Helping others is a reciprocal process that has benefited both the helper and the person being helped. Isn't it interesting that the more you indulge, the more unhappy you are. The more you give, the more you sacrifice, and the more you help others, the more free you become. But the way you become free is to be, you, you, by understanding God's love for you. So, what is the antidote for bondage? And the antidote for bondage is love. Both a love of God and love for one another. And that's why it's so important to have community. Because here's what the world tells you. The world tells you, you got to work at it. Uh, you know, you can fight your addictions. You, you, you can be strong. You can just say no. But the reality is that all of us will give up because at the very inner core of our being, at the very center of our nature, is our desire to fulfill our own sinful desires. And unless that's eradicated, unless that love core is transformed from loving yourself to loving God, you will never be able to resolve this desire challenge that you all have. Because at the root cause, no matter how hard you work, it will not free you. I want to show you a picture of um, uh, one of the concentration camps. It's Auschwitz. One of the most horrific places that, that you would uh, uh, go and you could take a tour of it. But uh, in the doorway of Auschwitz is a German word. Arbeit uh, mach frei. And in, in German, what this means is this. Work makes free. Work will liberate you and give you freedom. So when the people, the Jewish people, were led into these concentration camps, they had no idea what was behind uh, the skate. All they were led to believe is that they were being locked up, and the harder you work, the more free you become. Uh, one day you'll be released. But it was all a lie. It was a false hope. The Nazis made the people believe hard work equal liberation, but the word liberation was really another word for suffering and death. One reason that this phrase still haunts us is that it is a spiritual lie of this age. It is a satanic lie. It's a religious lie. It's a false hope, that impossible dream for people in this world. They believe that, no matter, that, 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 that we work our way to God. The more good you are, the your good works will outweigh your bad works, then you can stand before God and say, okay, I can enter heaven. But that hope is a, relig- is a false hope. That is the same hope of those entering into that concentration camp. The only freedom that we have is the very core of what, this, what the problem is, is ourselves, is our sin nature. That can only be er- eradicated by Christ. 
So I want to encourage you. If you're struggling, it's a hard road. You know, I, I liken uh, sin to this, that when you come down the mountain, that's how, what sin does. You, it, it's, it's a lot easier than to go up the mountain. If you ever hike down a mountain, it's a lot easier to hike up. Recovery is like hiking back up. And the only way we have the means to be able to recover fully is that that very inner core, inner drive has to be transformed. So I want to give you three things to think about as we close our time. Number one, how do you deal with and help others and help yourself deal with addictions and, and, and mastery? First is submit to Christ. In that little video, there's an interesting point that James makes about he had to surrender. Because if he didn't surrender, guess what would happen? He would continually be in bondage. And there's so many people who are in bondage. And it's not that they're poor. It's not that they're destitute. They have all the things in this world. But the reason that they're in bondage is because those very things are the things that they worship. The first thing that God calls us to do is submit ourselves to him, release all those things. Number two, don't do it alone. Seek help from others. That little video, he talks about he needed community. The only reason that, that he was able to re- go through this recovery is this community of people that are keeping him safe and accountable. And that's what the church is. The more you think you can deal w- with the problems yourself, the more destructive and dangerous that can be. That's why we're here. That's why we have counselors. We have a counseling ministry here. That's why we have pastors here. That's why we have small groups. So that in those moments where we are thinking and struggling, moving in a direction that we don't want to move, we have the community of God praying for us and walking us through it. Here's the reality for a lot of Christians is that we ask for help way too late. And by the time the disease has infected our whole body and our mind, that's when we say, okay, can you help me in? By then, it's too terminal. And lastly, the very thing that you struggle with, serve others through love. And by loving others and and, and recognizing that you are a sinner before God, that I'm a sinner before God, that, that my role as being a pastor has no merit whatsoever before God. But I am a pastor because I love God. He's called me to do this, and I love all of you. And I want to see all of you do well. And so my serving of, of, of being a pastor has nothing to do with the position, has nothing to do with the salary, a pay. It has to do with because of God's love for me. And because I love you, and, and hopefully as you love others, you're helping yourself deal with the issues of your life. You know, I, somebody, I used to think about this, and just a side note. If I wasn't a Christian, what kind of person would I be? I think I would be the most self-centered, selfish, resentful person. Because that's who I am now, (laughs) a little bit. But because of Christ's love, I'm able to continually understand that I don't have to be in bondage to those things. So I want to pray for you as we think about Easter week. Next Sunday, we're going to talk about the greatest hope the thing that confirms everything I'm talking about, the resurrection of Jesus. But if you're struggling, take a few moments right now. Let's all bow our heads. And this is just between you and God. What are the things that you are tempted by that has mastery over your heart? And just speak some of those to the Lord.
And if I were to ask you even more profound question, not what are you trying to run away from, but what are you running to? What is the thing that you love more than anything? More than your children? More than your spouse? More than your boyfriend or girlfriend? More than your job? More than anything? God calls us to love him with all of our hearts, with all of our souls, with all of our being. Because the answer to sinful addiction is a love relationship with Jesus.